Even after a political, military, or spiritual victory is won, that victory needs to be maintained as a safeguard against falling back into complacency, ease, and finally a return to defeat, once again into the bondage of tyranny. This is an addendum, an epilogue, if you will, to our messages on this civil magistrate. A roll covenant reading coming from Judges chapter 3, Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through verse 12, Judges chapter 3, 9 through 12, by inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rithithaim, and the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Verse 21, the end of the chapter. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say... Did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Notice verse 9 of Judges chapter 3. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer unto the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Now this was a turning point a turning point in Israel's history. They had been dominated by tyranny for eight long years by the Lord's hand in order to bring them, finally, once and for all, bring them to their knees to a point precisely for their humiliation, their fear, and their dread. This was God's hands upon them. So for eight long years, by the Lord's hand, Israel was under the bondage of tyranny. Now, consider the why behind the action of God. Why would God give his people over to a very wicked ruler who would then oppress them with wicked laws? And the answer is very simple. Whenever the people of God choose to forget God, 
and then leave off the law of God by neglecting it or perverting it or changing it or even to the extreme case of considering it as so many churches even today think that the law of God is too oppressive to Islamic or to Taliban. God shows them exactly what real oppression is by delivering them over to the most wicked of tyrannical lawgivers. The Reverend Joseph Moorcraft comments on this. He says, As Jehovah hath warned, disobedience brings cleansing, humbling, and judgment. Israel's sins brought upon her oppression by the Mesopotamians. She continued to do what is evil in the sight of Jehovah. She forgot Jehovah their God. She served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Her idolatry and spiritual adultery were screaming for punishment. To say that one of Israel's sins was that she had forgotten Jehovah for their God is astounding. How can one, particularly a nation like Old Testament Israel, or let me add this, a nation such as America or the Commonwealth of Virginia, how can one, particularly a nation like Old Testament Israel, so near to the time of Moses, so near to the time of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Monroe, and so many other colonists, that were the heritage of the Puritans and the Reformation giants of their age. How can one particularly, a nation like Old Testament Israel, so near to the time of Moses and Joshua, forget Jehovah? It's astounding. Now the idea that Israel forgot God implies, it actually implies that they no longer knew Him. In order to forget, it seems as if in order to forget something, you first had to know something and then you forgot something. In Israel's case, however, at this point, according to the Hebrew word that God expressly uses for the word forget, or they forgot, did not only imply that they did not know God, it seems to imply that they really never really knew God. They never really knew actually who God was. It wasn't that they knew God and then they forgot God. They really never knew the true God. And that made it so much easier to forget what they thought they knew of God. And once the oppression became too much to bear, once God brought the heavy hand of his chastisement upon Israel for their wretchedness, for their forgetfulness, for their perversion, once the oppression became too much to bear, Israel seeks the help from God. Not having anywhere else to go, they finally look to God. Having denied the living God in everything that they thought and they did, God brought them to the brink of destruction. But by His mercy, that's all it is. It's only by the mercy of God. No one moved the hand of God to show mercy. No one was making deals with God. How many of us were making deals with God on Tuesday? Oh God, if you would only bring righteousness back to the commonwealth. It was only by the sheer mercy of God For God is a merciful God who shows mercy even to those who deserve nothing but His wrath. And by the mercy of God, God raises up a deliverer, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother. Here is a man of great resolve. Not a perfect man. There is no perfect man, but a man of God nevertheless. Othniel was a man of faith. He was a man of courage, a man of tenacity, who lived and breathed his entire life for the glory of God. He had a purpose in his life. He might not have known what the purpose was until God raised him up, but he was preparing himself his entire life for that very time, for that very purpose. Are we preparing ourselves for that time? A man of faith, courage, tenacity, a man of prayer, lived and breathed his entire life for the glory of God. Note how God intervenes by by 
coming upon Othniel, enabling him to judge and to fight for the deliverance of God's people and for the future advancement of righteousness in Israel. Notice verse 10. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. What a powerful statement. That God himself, the eternal God, by his Spirit, he pours himself upon this man. It came upon him and it enabled him. Notice, he judged Israel and he went out to war. And the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed. Now by this time, Israel had pretty much given up on the reestablishment of peace and righteousness in their land. In fact, by this time, all seemed to be lost. It seemed that they would just be going from one tyrant to another, from one tyranny to another tyranny, to one sorrow and one misery, to another sorrow and another misery. All seemed to be lost. But that was not to be the case. But Israel forgot something else. And the question that we have to ask is, why did they seem to lose all hope? Of what part of, of God's character? Because they really never knew the God of Scripture. So they couldn't know all of the attributes of God. So what part of God's character and promise did Israel fail to recognize in the midst of their adversity and discouragement? Well, they forgot to recognize they forgot to count on the attribute of God's mercy. They forgot that God was a merciful God, not only a chastising God, but in His righteousness, He also is a merciful God. David is clear when he reflects upon the mercy of God when he sings Psalm 106 verse 1. And David was a man who was not a stranger to adversity. He was not a stranger to the tyranny of Saul. He was not a stranger to any kind of trouble. He was a man who was racked with trouble. And notice what he says. He begins by praising Yahweh. Psalm 106.1 Praise ye the Lord. All you people, he's saying, praise ye. In southern that would be ye all. Ye all. You all you people. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. And here's why. For he is good and because his mercy endureth forever. Israel forgot that about God. I think sometimes we forget that about God. He even admonishes Israel to remember this very fact in Psalm 118, verse 2. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. He goes through the litany of people that should be saying God's mercy endureth forever. It is not only a mercy which is in our lifetime, but it is a mercy which is enduring forever. David is expressing a vital attribute of God which is the hope of all his people that there will be mercy even in the face of wrath. Now without such an attribute, not only would man lose all hope of redemption, but without such an attribute of God's mercy, God would cease to be God. The mercy of God defines the God of Scripture. Mercy is one of the defining attributes of God that he is a God of mercy. Haggai calls the Lord Jesus the desire of nations based on the reality that He is the mercy promised to His people. Notice Haggai chapter 2 verse 7. And I will shake all nations. And that phrase there is pointing to Pentecost when He finally does shake all the nations. And the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill the house, this house, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Looking back on this prophecy, Zechariah's declares this in Luke chapter 1, 67 and following. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. Notice, even there, the illusion of mercy, that we shall be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The attribute of mercy defines our God. The only reason why God would pour mercy upon a people is that we should serve him in fear. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, the cleansing attribute that God grants to us the reverence of God, that we would serve Him without fear, in fear, without fear of men, in fear of His holiness, in reverence, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. See, there's a purpose for mercy. God just doesn't grant mercy because He is a merciful God. There's always a purpose. In Psalm 118, David adds something very essential to the encouraging words of mercy. Notice the connection between the granting of God's mercy and the fear and reverence of the Lord. 118 verse 4 of the Psalms. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. Notice the connection. God's mercy is reserved for those who fear the Lord because those who fear the sovereign king of the universe will not only trust him, but they will obey him. For the saint, obedience is wrought out of both fear and love, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 19 also describes the fear of the Lord as being clean and enduring. It serves as the foundation of our relationship with God. And yet, we obey primarily, not out of fear, but out of an all-consuming love toward God. Not out of dreadful fear of His wrath, but rather out of reverence to His holiness. And this is why Moses told Israel, and, and Christ reiterates this in the New Testament, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And then he adds this in chapter 11, Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. This is what Israel was missing. The reverential fear of the Lord coupled with passionate love toward him. Israel lacked both of those passions. They didn't fear God and they didn't love God. At least not passionately. Maybe lip service, but not passionately. And this is why they were brought into such a dreadful situation under the tyranny of the king of Mesopotamia. And yet for all of their sins, God shows mercy and they are delivered. Amazing. Amazing. That after all of their sins of of Baal worship, of, of the worship of the Ashtaroth, even after all of their sins they would be shown mercy. Morecraft observes this. He says, During Othniel's time as judge over Israel, he did all those things God raised up judges to do. He was called to prevent and punish evil. That is what a magistrate is to do. Prevent and punish evil by administering justice according to God's covenant word. As the Levites were to act as the guardians of the covenant society through their powerful ministry of education and worship seeking to prevent evil, the judges were to act as guardians of covenant society by avenging God's wrath on evildoers and seeking to deliver them from evil. Amazing, the governor-elect of the Commonwealth of Virginia said on the first day he's going to fire the parole board. You know why? Because they're letting out all the criminals. Preventing evil. Preventing injustice, punishing evildoers, 
This is what is required of God's civil rulers. And if they perform these duties, they are worthy to remain in office as legitimate magistrates. But if they do not, then they should be labeled illegitimate, whereby the wrath of God then abides upon them. Notice, Judges chapter 3, verse 11. And the land had rest 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now this would be a happy ending if it were to remain the fact. But Israel's time of deliverance was short-lived. The sad reality is that this deliverance only lasted 40 years. That's one generation. One generation. That means that your children go astray. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And it is here where God stresses that word again. And the children of Israel did evil again. And again, and again, and again, and they did it again. And as soon as the judge died, Israel relapsed into gross apostasy. They relapsed into gross apostasy as soon as Othniel died. In the space of one simple, one generation, parents couldn't keep their children in line one time. Not for one generation. The shame, you might think, is upon the child of that next generation, but the shame goes to the parent, to the mother and the father. In the space of one generation, Israel fell back into their sin, exposing them and the entire nation once again to God's frowning providence. God's wrath, the idolatry and worldliness of Israel, even after they were delivered, even after God showed them such mercy, was so ingrained in their minds that they fell back into their sin almost immediately after their liberation. And again, it must be understood that the only way Israel, or any nation for that matter, can muster up the wherewithal to call upon God for deliverance is by the mercy of God. But even then, even when God poured out His mercy upon them, in the case of Israel, they didn't call upon Him in sincerity and truth for the forgiveness of their many transgressions. They called upon Him because they were uncomfortable with the tyranny. We don't see any place where they're saying, Oh God, forgive us of our idolatry. They were more concerned about the tyranny and not about the reason for the tyranny. And Israel seemed more concerned over the oppression and the misery that was they were exposed to, but not so much concerned over the reason why they were brought into the situation of oppression. No repentance, no sorrow. Scripture is curiously silent as to whether or not there was any sincere repentance. It seems as if they simply wanted to be delivered from their oppressors, not from the sin that brought them into the oppression. And so it seems as if they just went right back into their idolatry. And this is a serious issue and a lesson for us today. Since Israel seemed to be more concerned with their political, financial, and social oppression rather than their spiritual maladies, they were destined, even on the eve of God's mercy, they were destined for future apostasy. And so whenever people refuse to come face to face with the sin that is causing their misery and pain, they can be assured that they will once again fall to the same fate. Because without repentance, there can be no long-term deliverance. Even though they will be temporarily delivered from their oppressors by Othniel, the judge, they would quickly fall prey to the same fate once he died. And so after 40 years, one generation, Israel faces another tyrannical episode in their history. 
Okay, so we, we have to ask some questions. How did Israel lose its place in God's favor? What were the particulars? Now, we can't just generalize and say, well, they sinned, they didn't repent. If we generalize the reason by simply saying that they failed to trust God or they failed to obey God or they became worldly, we simply are glossing over the particular reasons without actually identifying the specific reasons. So what were the reasons? What are the particular reasons why Israel kept losing favor with God? Now, I must remind you that these reasons are applicable to every nation. And so, what caused them to lose their footing and fall into extreme apostasy even after such a glorious deliverance? Now, remember, we stand today on a glorious deliverance. We stand today experiencing the mercy of God as a commonwealth. So the lessons herein are very pertinent to us today. So, what caused Israel to lose their footing and fall into extreme apostasy even after such a glorious mercy? Number one, misplaced zeal. Israel was zealous for liberation and deliverance, but they were not zealous for holiness. Wanting to be delivered from their hardships, not knowing that their hardships were given to return them to the Lord in holiness and fidelity. They zealously sought liberty from God, but not liberty to God. They sought liberty from God's frowning providence, but not liberty to obey. They had misplaced zeal. Secondly, they had misplaced focus. Even while calling out to God, Israel was still focused on the carnal things in life. They wanted deliverance not from tyranny itself, but from what tyranny prohibited them from. So they wanted deliverance not from tyranny itself. They didn't like the tyranny, that's for sure. But moreover, they did not like the fact that this tyranny prohibited them from certain things. Consider some examples. Do Americans want to be delivered from mask mandates so as to be free from having to put on a mask? Or that it is actually dangerous to the lungs? Or do they want to be free from the fact that wearing a mask is, de- is deceitful and it hides the face of man who is created in the image of God? In other words, what's the reason? Not to mention that it symbolizes a voiceless individual. You put on a mask, you're voiceless. And that's exactly what the tyrant wants, a voiceless individual. And if you're voiceless, how are you going to preach the gospel? How are you going to preach the liberating word of God? So really, what are we asking? We don't want to mask why. Second example. Are Americans refusing to be vaccinated with a potentially deadly variant because they are afraid to get sick or die? Or are they refusing because they believe that by taking the vaccine they will be violating scripture and the commandment of God? If you answer both, then the first reason for refusal should be because God forbids killing yourself, which is what might happen and has happened and is happening from people who are vaccinated. And this is a scary thing since many, depending on their conviction, many might actually lose their only venue of employment if they refuse to be vaccinated. This is a time of testing, my friends. This is where faith and trust comes into play. So the question we really are being asked 
And we must ask ourselves is, will we trust God to build a better society or will we refuse to fight for what we know is right and lawful by compliance? The problem here is that we have relied so long on the city of man and the godless institutions of this world for economic survival that they are now controlling everything and trapping us and placing us into this horrible situation because we've been depending on the city of man. It's time to take back what has been corrupted and reconfigured according to the liberating word of God. We can no longer allow men to take dominion over God's world and God's people. The devil does not own the world. It might lie in wickedness, but it's the duty of God's people to take dominion and subdue the earth unto the glory of God. We must be the ones that do this. But that takes both short and long-term planning. It takes team building. But more than anything, it takes sacrifice. But we're not willing to sacrifice. We just want to wake up in the morning, go to work, get a paycheck at the end of the week. And if we need to get vaccinated, let's just take the jab and everything will be good to go. But we are not a people of conviction, at least not most people. Sacrifice. But it takes something else. We need to start praying. We need to start repenting. We need to start asking God to, to really give us that, that fire in the belly, that passion. Until that happens, we will remain in the cyclical pattern, much like during the days of the judges, where we get mercy and then we fall away. We fall away, we get tyranny. We get tyranny, we get oppression. And then we call unto God for more mercy. How many times is God going to be merciful to our nation? until we get it right. Well, there is an end to his mercy. There was an end to Nineveh. There was an end to Sodom and Gomorrah. And there was even an end to the entire global order. When Noah had to take his sons, their wives, his wife, and the animals into the ark. There is an end to the mercy of God. Third example. Are Americans really angered over the mandate that they cannot any longer enter into certain restaurants? They can't go to certain stores? Are they angered over that mandate? Because they love dining out. They love to go to stores without a mask and take upon them some worldly pleasure. Or are they angry because the government is playing God by destroying businesses, business owners and their families. We must ask the question, why? What is our motivation for our anger? Why are we angry at the tyrant? Well, I will tell you, overall, we are angry at the tyrant because the state is not God and the tyrant is not God. Even though they want to be omniscient, omnipotent and omnipresent, they are not God and God will take his vengeance upon them. Third point, Israel's problem, misplaced fear. Whenever we fear men more than we fear the Almighty, we have a misplaced fear. Israel lost their fear of God. And by losing that fundamental aspect of their religion, they became prey to compromise. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We have misplaced fear. We're afraid of the state. We're afraid of, of the, the man in the civil realm. And if we are, then our fear of God is the problem. Number four, Israel also had misplaced their history. 
They lost their connection with the past. They were unable to understand what their future should look like as a result of misplacing their past history. God had provided for them a clear understanding of their history by all the wonders that he had done in their behalf. But they had forgotten those things. They misplaced their history, which led them to believe that they were doomed under the tyrannical hand of men. Notice how the psalmist Asaph exhorts God's people not to misplace or forget the history that God has providentially orchestrated. Psalm 78.2 Psalm 78, 2 and following. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. Notice, the fathers are telling them their history. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. Notice, I'm telling all my children about the history of God. The history of America, how we came to be, the city on the hill, the Puritans, the reformers, the colonists, even with all their foibles, with all of their warts, teaching the history and his wonderful works that he had done. For he established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children so that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare to them their children. Notice that generational continuity. The children's children's children. That they might set their hope in God. That's what we want for our children. Setting hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Number five. Misplaced direction. As a result of misplacing their past, Israel forfeited their future. They no longer had any direction because they no longer had anything to go by as a model. They had been God's people in almost the same way as America was to be God's nation, a city on a hill. God had given them His law, but they refused it for the law of the Canaanite people. And once that happened, Israel lost her way. Americans have lost their way because they've forgotten where they've come from and why God has blessed us. So Israel went from one wilderness to another simply because they had lost their direction. So let's ask this question. How does a nation lose its way? Well, it does so by failing to check its never-changing compass, which always points true north. And that compass is the Word of God. Now notice, I didn't say the Scripture, the Word of God, was a map. Because maps change with time. A compass never changes. It is enduring no matter where you are standing on the face of the earth. It always points true north. That's the Scripture. But because churches and pastors and theologians view the scripture as a map which changes with every shift of the culture, the nation will invariably finally lose its way and its compromised direction will bring it under the heavy hand of God's wrath. Well, you know, we have this cultural situation now so the scripture has to conform to the situation. Not so. It is a compass that always points true north. Misplaced direction builds man's kingdom and by doing so replaces the city of God with the city of man. Number six, misplaced trust. As a result of no longer trusting God for deliverance, they began to trust man or self or science or chance or the political machine, or money, or their job security, their, their, their IRA, or their pension, their employer, or a number of things. Trusting all of those things, but the one thing they needed to trust more than anything else, they needed to trust God, and they failed to trust God. Failure to trust God guarantees God's displeasure. 
Because victory depends upon faith in God. A trusting in the God who is unseen, but that which is very real and operational in time and in history and among nations is essential to victory. Finally, number seven. Misplaced tactics. Israel's tactics no longer included the application of God's word. At best, it was a blend of God's word mingled with man's ideas and their inventions. At its worst, it was Canaanite worldly law eviscerating God's law and the power thereof to bring about a righteous order. Moses made this quite clear to Israel just before they entered into the land of Canaan in order to insulate the people from this idolatry. Moses says this, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and to the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord of you, God of your fathers giveth you. Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Notice verse 5 and following. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land, whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen and lest they depart from thine heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. Notice once again that generational continuity. So in order to secure an enduring legacy of God's blessings, Israel needed to maintain their fidelity to God by obeying His law word throughout many generations. And while they were basking in the peace and liberation that God had given them during the 40 years that they rested, they should have been working to maintain that peace by restructuring their world according to the law of God. So while the land had peace 40 years, that was a day to work, to maintain what God had given them, to reflect, to repent, to re-examine. And this is what we must learn so that whenever we are liberated, instead of sitting back lazily and saying, well, this is a great mercy of God, let me now build my own fiefdoms. Instead of sitting back lazily enjoying our redemption, now is the time to work. We must do everything now so we can protect what we have been given. Protect what we have been given so it doesn't slip back into tyranny, slipping away from us because of our sloth and our our lackadaisicalness. The time to work is when we are freed from tyranny of men and not after we are brought into its bondage. Notice what Jesus says as he teaches us this principle. In John chapter 9, verse 4, notice what he says. I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Apply that to the day of tyranny, when the night comes, when tyranny is there. No man can really work. We are always on the defensive. We are hedging and seeing what we can hide and what we can do. 
when the boot of tyranny is upon our necks. But when we're liberated, now we're free. Now we can work. Now we can make changes. Now we can take that power of dominion, the power of God, and we can make changes. So brethren, brothers and sisters, let us then work while it is day, the day of our liberation, lest we let it slip from our hands as a result of our unwillingness to do the work of Him that sent us. And in this way, we can ensure a legacy of peace for many generations. And this we shall do. God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Let us learn from Israel so we do not fall into that same snare. Amen.